This is Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. Presented by Pastano. On today's show, Brian chats with four-time Olympic silver medalist for swimming, Kara Lynn Joyce. When you watch Olympic trials or you watch the Olympics and you see all eight swimmers parade out behind their block, they've all just come out of a ready room where they've been sitting, sometimes in silence, sometimes not in silence, but sitting in a small room together for at least 10 minutes. Then we talk with Mario Flores, the co-founder and managing director of Sportivo. The Latino population in the U.S. is 17%, about 55 million living in the U.S. The purchasing power of about $1.4 trillion. Now, with Sports Business Radio, here's Brian Berger. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of Sports Business Radio. We're happy to be powered by our friends at Pistano. Follow them online at Pistano.com or on Twitter at Pistano. Have a good show lined up for you this week. Kara Lynn Joyce. She is a four-time Olympic silver medalist swimmer, also the subject of the documentary Touch the Wall with Olympic swimmer Missy Franklin. We're going to go inside. What is it like to prepare for the Olympics? How much money do you make? the sacrifice that goes into being an Olympic athlete. With the Olympics coming up, I met Carolyn Joyce in New York a few weeks ago at the Sports PR Summit. We're going to bring her on and really dig into the life of an Olympic athlete. That's coming up on our show. Mario Flores is also going to join us. He's with a company called Sportivo. We're going to talk about the Latin sports market, some big events coming up this summer that we'll discuss with him. We'll dig into the Latin sports market as well. I'm joined in studio by our executive producer, Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you? I'm good. It's good to be back uh, behind the mic with you. It's been a while with all the Your Crazy May. Yeah. So it's good to be back here in studio rocking out a a great show. I'm excited. Just a home run sports PR summit in New York, uh, May 17th at the Players' Tribune. They were a fantastic partner. Uh, I sat down with Stephen Ross and Gary Bettman. Um, We talked about so many different things. Uh, Jeff Gordon was there, Lisa Leslie, Isaiah Thomas from the Boston Celtics. Really insightful Featured conversations, panel discussions. There was not a disappointment at all. It was just, it was a, a terrific event. I'm a perfectionist. I have high standards, and the event exceeded my expectations. The venue was phenomenal. It overlooks the Hudson River. Um, really cool, the Players Tribune studios, and, and it was great to work with them. And then we've got our Sports PR Summit social media workshop coming up now. July 20th at Twitter headquarters in San Francisco. So uh, looking forward to that. But yes, happy to be back behind the mic and we'll be doing shows more frequently. But really, May is tough for me because I am on the run. I went to the Sports Lawyers Conference, too, in uh, Los Angeles and uh, was on a social media panel there. It was interesting uh, to see some of those panel discussions. And and, uh, someone I met, Griggs, is Lisa Friel. She's the person that the NFL hired to deal with uh, all of their off-the-field issues, specifically domestic violence. I'll tell you what, she was super impressive on the panel I saw her on, and I had a chance to talk to her a little bit uh, after she was off stage. and I think the NFL made a brilliant hire with her, so uh, it'll be interesting to see how things develop with the NFL in the future with Lisa Friel lending her expertise and input to the conversation. What a job for her. I mean, man. That's not you. You won't have a dull day in that in that gig. Well, I mean. so it was really interesting at Sports PR Summit. The last panel of the day, this was incredible. Uh, we had the top six sports leagues and their top PR people on the stage. So the NFL, NBA, 
Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, NHL, and NASCAR all on one stage. They had never shared a stage before. And I think the takeaway for everyone was that they're all battling similar challenges. They're all dealing with similar things. But the NFL has it all at a different level. They're under the microscope more than any other sports league. Brian McCarthy from the NFL was there. I think he does a really good job. And, you know, they're challenged at a level that the other leagues are not challenged. They have things that are covered in a different way by the media than the other sports leagues. So uh, it was really insightful and and, and informative, and I so appreciate all of those people uh, participating Another quick thing, NBA Finals are set. It's the Warriors and it's the Cleveland Cavaliers. Stanley Cup, we've got San Jose and uh, Pittsburgh. So the marquee you know, championship rounds for the NHL and the NBA underway, that'll be fun to watch in the next few weeks. And, you know, Kevin Durant, free agent, <laughs> every day there's... So much coverage. It's like LeBron. You know, it's Kevin Durant watching. Where is he going to go? And, and, you know, we'll dig into that in the next few weeks on this show as well because I've got some thoughts on uh, what he should do. And I even tweeted out if I were advising him what I thought he would do at SB Radio. All right. Coming up next, Carolyn Joyce, four-time Olympic silver medalist. She's going to share some insight with us. What does it take to be an Olympian, both in the pool in her case and outside the pool how much do you make like we're going to really dig into what it takes to be an olympian with carolyn joyce you're listening to sports business radio we'll be right back stay in touch with sbr on twitter twitter.com slash sb radio powered by postano hi it's brian berger here at Sports Business Radio, we are proud to work with our partners, Pastano. They make a sports-proven visual marketing platform that I've personally been amazed to see. Teams like the Dallas Cowboys, Boston Red Sox, LA Kings, and Cleveland Cavaliers all use Pastano to engage their fans. When sports teams and fans tell their stories together, amazing things can happen. Every fan has a story. Whether you want to put selfies on the Jumbotron, create a dynamic social media command center, or activate a hashtag campaign on your website, Pastano can design an amazing social experience true to your brand. Even better, using the Pastano platform can pay for itself through selling sponsorships. As an example, the Kings sell sponsor space to Toyota and other clients and run the ads using Pastano. Want to see what your team's social content could look like? Schedule a demo today. Go to pastano.com slash sports. If you're a fan of this podcast, you understand the real power of engaging your fans. And these guys get it. That is P-O-S-T-A-N-O dot com. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is Carolyn Joyce. She is a three-time U.S. Olympic swimmer. She competed in the Olympics in 2004, 2008, 2012. She's a four-time Olympic silver medalist. She's an 18-time NCAA champion. She's also the subject of the documentary Touch the Wall, along with decorated Olympic swimmer Missy Franklin. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Kara Lynn Joyce. I met her a few weeks ago at my Sports PR Summit event in New York. Kara, it was a pleasure to meet you in person, and I'm glad you're joining us now on Sports Business Radio. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks for having me, Brian. So 
you know, the Olympics are coming up, and I've wanted to have an Olympic athlete on to really dig into the life of an Olympian, the preparation that goes into preparing for these big moments that you've worked your entire life for. So I appreciate you you taking some time to join. Let's start with how young were you when you first started swimming and when you maybe had an inkling that you might want to compete at a high level uh, in the swimming pool? <laughs> All right. Well, um, here's the thing. I am the youngest of three and also the only girl. So growing up with two older brothers, um, you know, what I wanted didn't really count for much. <laughs> and my heart was set on being a gymnast, but my brothers wanted to be swimmers. So my family had one car and that car went to the pool. <laughs> and even though like it wasn't my first choice, I honestly, I loved swimming. You know, I was five years old. Loved racing my brother, seeing my friends, and um, I watched the Olympics. I guess my first introduction to the Olympics was probably like most people. Um, you know, I saw it on TV at, at a really young age. I was seven, and um, I turned to my mom, and I was like, Phew, Mom, I don't, I don't even know what this Olympics thing is, but I want to do that someday. I want to be an Olympic swimmer. And mind you, I was, I was not a good seven-year-old. I was not very fast. And my mom uh, looked at me and she's like, okay, Kara, you know, um, you just keep working on getting from one side of the pool to the other without stopping. And you just try your best and you never know. You never know what could happen. And so I would say at a, at a pretty young age, you know, I had a desire to swim at a high level. So in the documentary, Touch the Wall, we see you're getting up at, you know, three in the morning to go train. You have long days. Uh, I would say you're, you're kind of isolated. You've got your people that you train with whether it's fellow swimmers and coaches, but you know you are spending most of your time training for excellence in the swimming pool. What is that life like? Because it seems like there are so many sacrifices involved with that type of a lifestyle. Yeah, I, I can definitely see how um, it looks like sacrifices, but I think when you go through the entire process of you know being a young club swimmer and then being a high school swimmer, being a college swimmer, Swimming is what you know, and it really doesn't feel like sacrifices because, honestly, you don't know what, if anything, that you're missing out on. And I would say, you know, my going for my third Olympics in London, I was 26 years old, so I was several years removed from college. And um, being in that environment, I would say, was a little bit more lonely. You know, I didn't have 23 other girls that I was living with and, you know, hanging out with every day and training with to really be my support system. And you, I became so much more reliant, you know, on my family, on my friends who were, you know, new to the world of swimming because of me. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's interesting the way, you know, a professional career develops and morphs as the years go on. So again, you competed in the 2004, 2008, 2012 Olympics. There's a lot of people that, you know, they work their entire life just to compete in, in one Olympic Games. You did it three times. <laughs> How difficult is that? Because I would imagine after you kind of climbed to the top of the mountain that first time in 2004, now you've got to say, okay, I got to do this again. And then you did it yet again in 2012. That's got to take a lot of dedication. Yeah, definitely. I would say each Olympics became harder and harder to qualify for. You know, my, my first Olympics in 2004, I was 18 years old. I was on this you know, trajectory that went straight up to the sky, and I didn't know what failure was. 
And it's really easy to succeed when you don't really understand fear. You don't know, you know, how bad things can be. And over the course of the next four years from 18 to 22, you know, I finished out my college career and just had the normal ups and downs of any athlete. And, you know, also I went into Olympic trials with a target on my back because I was already, you know, uh, an Olympian from four years prior. And so people were definitely, you know, looking at me and trying to hunt me down. And, um, you know, and, and four years after that, you, you also, while it does become harder, you become wiser. And each experience has been a huge learning experience for me. Um, and I, I definitely think if <laughs> London was the first Olympics I was going for at 26 years old, I don't think I would have made it without the two prior Olympic experiences under my belt and going through the Olympic trials process and everything like that. Carolyn Joyce is my guest. You can follow her on Twitter and on Instagram at Carolyn Joyce. She also has a new website, carolynjoyce.com. <laughs> There's a lot of people out there, they see Missy Franklin, they see Michael Phelps, and they go, hey, this is the glamorous life. They must be making millions of dollars, everyone. And you know what I tell people all the time is there's very few Olympic athletes that parlay their success at the Olympics into millions of dollars. Let's first start with, you know, in the, in the movie Touch the Wall, they talk about a $30,000 stipend that's given to uh, Olympic athletes when they're training, but you know sometimes you don't get that stipend. How do you live and train and make enough money to have an apartment? And, and maybe you can explain kind of the finances behind being an Olympic athlete. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you said, you know, it's, um, it's very few and far between that actually make the millions of dollars and the ones that do are probably all of the names that you that you recognize but mind you there are 52 men and women on the olympic team and so for the other 48 of them or something it can be pretty challenging um and you know we do have the opportunity to qualify for a thirty thousand dollar a year stipend um you get that opportunity every at the end of every summer to qualify for it and it's, it's some kind of ranking of, you know, top 12 in the world combined with, you know, top two or three in the country. And it's, it's a very difficult um, stipend to qualify for. And, and then once you do get it, um, you know, $30,000 as a professional athlete really doesn't go very far when you think about all of the training expenses that you have. You know, you pay your coach, you pay your strength coach, you pay for physical therapy, you pay for all of your food, you pay for travel to every meet that you go to, you know, airfare, um, rental cars, hotels, and the money goes pretty fast. So on top of that $30,000, if you are lucky enough to qualify for it, um, you either need to have some kind of an endorsement contract, you know, whether it's from one of the main swimming sponsorship um, companies like Speedo or Tier or Arena or Nike, um, or you can have a part-time job. Um, you know, also if, if you're lucky to have a family situation where they can help, um, fund, you know, your training expenses that comes in handy too, but it's, it can be pretty tricky. You know, people get very creative with how they make a living. Um, you know, even teaching some lessons can, can take you to everyone depending on where they're living and, and what kind of uh, circumstances that they kind of are exposed to, you know, what they decide to do. Um, for me personally, I was, I was very lucky to have, a contract with Speedo um, from 2007 through 2012. And so while there were times throughout my career while I didn't qualify for that $30,000 stipend, I was, I was lucky to be able to fall back on you know a, a contract that I had and some appearance money and, and things like that. 
Now, the thing that was interesting about the documentary Touch the Wall and has been well documented is Missy Franklin, you know, when she first competed, she's in high school. She returned to her high school team. She wanted to go to college. She didn't take the instant millions that could have come her way because she wanted to remain an amateur. So in that situation, you know, you have great earning potential, but you want to maintain your amateur status. I thought that was an interesting decision that she made. Oh, absolutely. And I think that really speaks to the kind of person that Missy is. And, I, you know, I from the first time I met her, when we started training together, I was 25 and she was 15. I mean, mind you, we're the same size. She might have even been an inch taller than me, and I'm six feet tall. Um, but I knew when I met her that she was just so wise beyond her years. And I think that's that's come to the surface a lot in the d- decisions that she's made as a professional, you know, since the Olympics, since turning down... Uh, arguably millions of dollars after London. Um, you know, she she wanted that college experience and she wanted to be able to compete, you know, before that on her high school team. And, you know, those experiences she knows has shaped her into the person that she is today. And now she's able to accept that money, you know, now that she's garnered those team experiences and developed these, you know, lifelong relationships that she'll be able to take with her. Um, you know, she's more of an adult and swimming for money is a lot easier to do. I think when, you know, you know, all the moving parts that are in play as opposed to being 17, 18 years old, signing for millions of dollars and, you know, maybe being more oblivious to it. So she definitely did her homework and I think made a decision that was 100% best for her. My 11 year old daughter and I sat down this past Sunday and on iTunes, watched the documentary Touch the Wall that features you and Missy Franklin. And, you know, I thought it was really, really well done. And I just, you know, wanted to ask you how that came about, because, you know, I know Missy uh, has had cameras following her around for a long time, but you're a decorated swimmer in your own right. You're an 18-time NCAA champion, you know, again, three-time U.S. Olympic swimmer. How did the How did the idea to film this documentary come about? It's, it's actually a funny story. Um, so I, I moved to Colorado to train with Missy specifically for the 2012 London Olympics. And I moved there about 15 months before Olympic trials. So like maybe April 2011. And at that point, you know, Missy was getting some attention in the sports world and the swimming world. And we were going into a big world championship meet that summer. And we'd had Chicago Tribune come. We'd had the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We'd had the Washington Post. And I was so used to seeing all of these different medias coming to our practice to, you know, watch Missy, interview her. And so Missy and I are swimming a practice. It was maybe May of 2011. And these two guys with cameras come in. And I'm like, oh, Missy, what, what press is here for you today? And, and she's 15 at the time and she has braces and huh. she looks at me kind of sheepish and embarrassed. And she was like, um, it's these two guys. They're like making a movie about me. And I was like, Oh, that's great. Good for you. How, how cool is that? And so then, you know, Missy and I swim our entire practice and we go head to head. And, and like I said, you know, I'm, I'm six feet tall and Missy's six foot one and we're swimming in a pool with teenagers much smaller than the two of us. And so we finished the whole practice and the two filmmakers come over and they were like, um, who are you? And I was like, oh, hi, I'm, I'm Karen. I'm the new kid. <laughs> and they were like, um, can we sit down and talk to you today? We, we had no idea that, that, you know, Missy had a new training partner coming here. We're doing this film about her. We'd love to get some insight from you. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, that's cool. You're making a film about swimming. 
And um, so they came to my house. We talked for maybe three hours. And, and then they asked me to be a part of it. And, and like, I, you know, it's a film about swimming, which I had my doubts because I, I know how swimming is perceived. And I know it's super popular every four years. And, and I'm okay with that. But in my head, I'm like, okay, my mom might be the only person to sit down and watch a movie about me and swimming. Like, I don't know what, <laughs> what's going to come of this. But, I'll, yeah, I'll be a part of this, this project. And so for the next, I don't know, year and a half, they followed Missy and I to practices, to a lot of our competitions around the country, around the world. And they had this story. And the story is, you know, Missy being 15, 16 years old on her journey to her first Olympic Games and being so innocent and just, you know, learning everything. Everything was new. Everything that she did was new. And it was the first time. And it was so cool for me training side by side with her going for my third Olympics to see it again for the first time through her eyes. And so we have these parallel journeys and, um, you know, the filmmakers, they really didn't know what story that they would end up with at the very end because Olympic trials are, I don't know, maybe four weeks before the Olympics. So for years they have all this footage and they have like these two girls that they've been following around. And, and so finally Olympic trials come and, you know, Missy has, uh, the most amazing meet, you know, the first female to ever qualify for seven events at an Olympics. And I remember my event was on the very last night, on the last day, the last chance that a woman could qualify for the Olympic team. And they were like, you know, Kara, um, we, we are so proud to have, you know, been on this journey with you for this long and whatever happens, happens. You know, it's, it's still going to be a great film. And um, so I, you know, spoiler alert, I swam and I, I ended up making the team alongside Missy. Um, and actually one of the first people I saw after I qualified for the Olympics, I walked off the pool deck. One of the first people I saw was this filmmaker, Grant, um, who had become a close friend. And he just hugged me and sobbed into my shoulder. Aww. And I'll never forget that. I remember patting him being like, it's okay. It'll <laughs> be great. And he was just so happy. Um, but it was just, it was a special moment. And you know, the fact that we could train together side by side and then eventually um, be able to go and travel the Olympics together. We got to walk in um, closing ceremonies together. It was just really special. Well, I highly recommend Touch the Wall on iTunes for anyone who has not seen it. Whether you're a sports fan or not, it's, it's a really compelling story. I thought it was very well done. How bad did the Olympic ring tattoo hurt you? Because it looked like you were in some pain when you were getting that. <laughs> My daughter and I were like, okay. oh, my gosh, she's really hurting. Right? Like, I thought you were going to get sick. I was like, oh. <laughs> and guess what? I would be the same way. I'd be the same way. I would not get a tattoo. I don't have a tattoo. So you're braver than I am. I'll, I'll throw that out there. There, Yeah, there are a lot of people braver than both of us. <laughs> I am. A, I have a needle phobia. I am terrified of them. And it's, it's kind of like an Olympic tradition for the swimmers, the Olympic swimmers, to get the tattoo together and you know, I escaped it my first two Olympics. I somehow managed to, like, <laughs> not get pressured into it. And then Missy made me, uh, you know, promise her that if we made it together that uh. I would finally get the tattoo. And so, of course, you know, like, <laughs> I go. I'm like, no, 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 Missy, I'm not going to get the tattoo. I'm just here to support you. But then I ended up getting peer pressured. <laughs> I got it. I mean, it hurt. Probably not as bad as, as I was expecting it to hurt. But, um, you know. It, it definitely hurt. And I do tell kids, I'm like, okay, just keep in mind, kids, tattoos are forever and ever. Because I'll meet kids that have seen the movie and they're like, do you still have the tattoo? I'm like, yes, I have it. No, you can't see it. And yes, it's forever. <laughs> oh, my gosh. 
Carolyn Joyce is my guest. She's a four-time Olympic silver medalist swimmer. We've got a few minutes left with her. Uh, U.S. Olympic trials are coming up. And, you know, I think a lot of people wonder what happens after the trials up until the Olympics. How do you stay sharp? What do you do to train? Walk us through what that looks like. Yeah, the... The U.S. has a, a pretty great setup. I mean, as far as hosting Olympic trials, we are probably one of the last countries to actually have a qualifying meet. So Olympic trials are, I think I mentioned earlier, it backs up maybe it's four weeks before the Olympics. And, you know, there are some countries that qualified six months ago, eight months ago. Um, but our country, it's, it's something that we've done for a long time. We've seen a lot of success with. So typically, um, right after Olympic trials, um, the team will assemble maybe within a day or two. Sometimes you get to go home. Sometimes you kind of have to go straight to training camp. But there's typically a stateside training camp. And my first two Olympics, that was in Palo Alto. Um, My last Olympics, the stateside training camp was in Knoxville. And that goes on for maybe two weeks. And, you know, everyone trains together. You're staying in a hotel. You're eating all your meals together. And it's it's a really great team bonding. You, you feel like you're becoming Team USA. Um, it's, it's pretty special. And then after that, there's phase two of training camp, and that's typically at an international setting. And so for the Athens Olympics, we had our training camp in Majorca. Um, for Beijing, our international stage was in Singapore. And then this last Olympics, our international stage was in Beachy, France. Um, so that's kind of to get you closer to the Olympics, but not all up in the media and, you know, in the hype, but kind of get adjusted to the time, um, hopefully like a short flight to, to the Olympics. But it's, it's really just like a four week training camp. Everyone's, um, you know, yardage and, and volume kicks up right after trials and then you taper back down again, you know, doing less and less yardage to really prepare for that, that big race at the Olympics. Um, but it's, it's an amazing time. It really is. What's the ready room? <laughs> the ready room. Yeah, you you, room. you mentioned that to me, so now I'm curious about what's the ready room. Yeah, when okay, when you watch Olympic trials or you watch the Olympics and you see all eight swimmers parade out behind their block, they've all just come out of a ready room where they've been sitting, sometimes in silence, sometimes not in silence, but sitting in a small room together for at least 10 minutes. Um, you know, it's an assembly room. You have to check in there and you have to sit there prior to going out. And it can get kind of intense in there. You know, everyone has different ways of preparing themselves and whether it's they like to keep to themselves, whether they're, you know, chatty cafes and just want to like talk everyone's ear off, whether they want to listen to their music loud enough so everyone can hear it. Everyone kind of has a different MO and it can get pretty intense in there. Um, but it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, right when you see people walk out, they have just come from like... <laughs> confinement together <laughs> all eight of them that's um, interesting pretty we should yeah we should get a nanny cam in the ready room <laughs> no <laughs> kidding <laughs> yes that's a great idea which brings me <laughs> to my next question when we spoke briefly uh, in new york at the sports pr summit you know you had mentioned that you might want to get into broadcasting and obviously just from this conversation you're well-spoken uh and you have a unique perspective that you can offer through years and years as a, an Olympic athlete. What might you want to get into? Like, what's that path look like for you? So, yeah, this is all, it's kind of new and paving my own way. Um, I think I have, like you said, kind of a different approach, a unique approach, um, where I, I actually have a lot of background and history in the sport. Um, ideally, I think I would just, I would love to cover 
Olympic sports in general, um, whether it's swimming, track, all of it. I have such a passion for it, and it's such a, a big, amazing part of my life. Um, and then I'm also really interested in, you know, lifestyle pieces and, and talking about things like the ready room that people don't really even know exist or, you know, talking about what it's like when Team USA gets all of their uniforming, whether you're Michael Phelps or it's your first Olympic Games, it's like Christmas. It's so cool. Um, so I think there are just so many unique things that could be shared um, to, to just get people a more in-depth look at the Olympics. And I have my first, uh, my first gig, I guess you could say, at Olympic Trials in a couple weeks. Um, I'll be covering swimming, doing a recap every night. Um, it'll be streaming online at usaswimming.org. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that and then to see where things go from there. That's great. Well, I think you'll do a great job. And, you know, I know you've got your new website, carolynjoyce.com. You're on Instagram and Twitter, at carolynjoyce. The importance of social media. You know, we had a discussion at Sports PR Summit about leveraging the stage of an Olympic Games. The spotlight shines bright during the Olympics, but when it's done and the spotlight isn't shining as brightly, how do you parlay that spotlight during the Olympics into something that you can work on afterwards. So, you know, I think the fact that you're on social media, you've got this new website, uh, you're easily accessible, you're, you're showing your expertise and, and kind of taking people behind the scenes. I think that's going to be helpful for you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I, I hope to stay in the, in the sports world. Um, you know, it's, it's a good place to be, I think. <laughs> so one more question for you. Uh, we've seen in the last few months uh, the U.S. women's soccer team take a stand on equal pay. And again, I have an 11-year-old daughter. She plays sports, and, and I want her to grow up with equal rights and equal pay. And, you know, I, I'm very vocal on this show about that. What do you think of the, the effort that's being organized? And is enough being done? Does more need to be done? How does that all play out, you think? Um, I, I love the movement. I absolutely think that men and women should be paid equally for, you know, what the work that they do and whether it's, uh, you know, you're at an office or you're an athlete and you're, you're selling X amount of tickets or, you know, you have X amount of time on TV. Um, I really do think that it, it should be equal. And I think the movement is just beginning. I really do. And I think, of course, there is more that can be done and, and bringing awareness to it. Um, and, and getting men behind it, too, I think, <laughs> is a big part of it. Um, so having support from people like you that, that understand the, the need for it and the value of it and somebody that has a daughter, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's a great start, but not even close to being, you know, where it needs to be. Carolyn Joyce, you can follow her on her website at carolynjoyce.com. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Kara Lynn Joyce. It has been a pleasure to meet you in person. I've enjoyed this conversation today, and let's definitely stay in touch. Okay, thanks so much, Brian. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR, powered by Postano, after this. Get 
Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, but also the founder of the exclusive Sports PR Summit. After four years in New York City, we're launching a sister event on the West Coast. The first ever Sports PR Summit Social Media Workshop will take place on Wednesday, July 20th at Twitter headquarters in San Francisco. The full-day invite-only event for 125 senior PR and social media executives working in sports will provide an opportunity to hear from the biggest and most relevant social media companies in the world about their latest technologies and best practices. The workshop will allow attendees to leave with a better understanding about how to best utilize the top social media platforms, how to create unique content that engages social media users, which tools to use to know how your audience is engaging with your content, and how best to monetize social media content. Also as part of our West Coast event are two unique networking receptions at invite-only venues. One on the evening of July 19th at Bleacher Report, and the other following our workshop at Twitter on July 20th. For more information and to receive an invite to the Sports PR Summit Social Media Workshop, get in touch with us at sportsprsummit.com. This is Sports Business Radio. My guest is Mario Flores. He is the co-founder and managing director for Sportivo. You can find him on Twitter at Latino Sports Guy. Mario, how are you? I'm good, Brian. I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being on. We've got two big events coming up this summer, the Olympics in Rio and Copa America Centario in the United States for the first time. Wanted to have you on to talk about uh, Latino sports marketing and how brands are reaching out to the Latino sports population. Let's start with talking about what your company does to connect uh brands like Nike and others, I, that's where I met you, um, to the Latino sports market, because that's a, that's a huge population. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Latino population in the U.S. is 17%, about 55 million living in the U.S. And so what we do, primarily through, primarily through you know relevant public relations, is we connect brands like Nike, Red Bull, and a host of others, um, really tap into those passion points um, that Latinos you know, that we know will will resonate with them. And so it's not just about the language, but it's about, you know, cultural winks and cues. And, and sports is definitely one of those key drivers for Latino consumers and brands. So with those numbers that you just gave, I mean, 17%, how important is the Latino population to brands in America? Well, if you, if you think about not just the numbers, but the purchasing power of about $1.4 trillion, I mean, that's pretty significant. And, you know, oftentimes brands will either be stagnant or maybe not show more, m- much growth. And the Latino consumer is there. I mean, they're they're consuming just about all the goods that everyone else is. They're purchasing vehicles, purchasing cell phones, uh, homes, see, you know, consumer purchase goods, et cetera, packaged goods, and so there's that opportunity there and brands need to truly embrace the community and their growth and purchasing power. With the Olympics in Rio and again, Copa America, Centario in the United States for the first time, how are brands using those events to connect with U.S. Latino consumers? Well, we know soccer is one of those really key passion points for Latinos. And so, I mean, you're, you're just starting to see a lot of, a lot of, uh, a fervor going on now, and I know that there's going to be activations from the top nine sponsors that are kind of official Copa America sponsors, and I think you'll see some others that are kind of on the fringes who may tap into that. 
Um, and so I, I expect just to see a lot of movement. Um, I know Telemundo and their sibling station, NBC Universal, um, in terms of the Olympics, are, are also going to broadcast that. And so, you know, there's been a lot of controversy around the Olympics with the turmoil going on in Brazil and in Latin America. Uh, but, I, but I do think you're going to see, you know, just a lot of action um, on programming that are going to highlight the Mexican men's national soccer team, and then those other sports during the Olympics that also really connect with the Latino consumer, like boxing and diving and track and field and basketball. So would you say, you know, we've talked about soccer being a key passion point for Latinos. Are those other sports that you just mentioned, do they also resonate with Latinos? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you look at the history of boxing and, and just the tradition of those great Mexican fighters and, and um, Caribbean fighters as well. Um, you know, that's that's another really key staple of, of sports that connect with, with Latinos. And now you see, hey, really becoming another strong force within that kind of boxing world, if you will, um, you know, with just, again, another great slew of fighters that are coming coming up and are already part of, of MMA superstars. And so for, for brands, you know, it's not just about soccer. I mean, it's, it's boxing, it's MMA, but it's also stepping back and taking a look at, you know, who, who are we trying to connect with? You know, what Latino subgroup, if you will? You know, are they second, third generation? Are they, are they speaking more English than Spanish? Are they kind of consuming both media? And so it's taking a look, uh, look at that kind of big picture of the consumer and not just slapping, you know, a soccer ball on something and saying, "Okay, we've checked off our Latino sports programming, and I think we're good for now." You know, it's really, it's really talking to and connecting through those, you know, cultural links and, and cultural nuances that that will make a huge difference in any campaign. When a company like Nike or Red Bull comes to you, do they say, "Okay, here's our campaign for English speaking, and here's our campaign for"? Latino speaking, or is it all one campaign typically? It, it typically is all one campaign, and so it's up to us as experts in the market space to take a look at what that campaign is and how do we make it resonate with our media and our consumers. So it may not have necessarily a Latino athlete connected to it, you know. but where, where can we find those touch points that we know will make that difference? And so you know, often brands kind of think like, oh, my God, do we need to create a whole separate brand, a whole separate kind of um, strategy for the Latino consumer? And not necessarily. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff going on right now where where experts can, can take a look at, you know, what it is that's being done and say, okay, this is how we can make it a little bit more relevant without necessarily creating or recreating a whole new campaign. Mario Flores, the co-founder and managing director for Sportivo, is my guest. You can find him on Twitter at Latino Sports Guy. Which brands are doing it right when it comes to leveraging sports and reaching the Latino fan, in your opinion? There's, there's a couple of brands that really stick out to me, Coca-Cola and Anheuser-Busch, who have been in that Latino market space for a long time. Hmm. Um, one other brand that really sticks out to me is Tecate, the beer brand. Hmm. Um, you know, they've been part of boxing for 10 years, and it's worked for them. Um, they recently announced a partnership with Mexican fighter uh, Canelo Alvarez that featured him in English and Spanish commercials prior to his fight with Amir Khan because, again, Tecate, their brand manager, 
they understand that their consumer is both consuming Spanish and English media, right? And that's 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 the beauty of the Latino consumer is that they live in these kind of dual worlds, if you will, where they may be consuming some English and some Spanish and just living this really larger life um, that makes it really, I think, very attractive to brands um, looking to touch. So for me, Tecate has been doing it right. They've stuck with boxing and it's working for them. So that's an interesting point. I know it's not one size fits all, but when you sit down with your clients, how do you advise them on using Spanish or English or both? I, I think it goes back to, you know, what is the brand stand for, right? And, and then who is the, the target consumer group? Is it the Mexican national that's maybe first generation? It could even be second generation. Or is it maybe like the Puerto Rican and Dominican fan who is maybe, be, maybe more passionate with baseball? or boxing. And so you, know, you really need to sit down with your client and, and, and almost do a mini brainstorm of, of the profile of your, your intended consumer. And so from there, then you can build out what does that look like? Where will you be on social media? Are you leading with Instagram or are you leading with Facebook? Are you um, doing all materials in Spanish only? Is it English only? And what does that verbiage look like? And so and so experts like us, you know, that's what we're here for. We're here to guide and to educate, but also be part of the process. You know, we, we like to be sitting down at the table uh, from the beginning so that we're able to then come in with our knowledge and expertise to make sure that we're doing the right job for the client. And at the end of the day, that the client is resonating with that consumer. How important is it to leverage social media to activate the campaigns that you're creating? You know, I think nowadays, I mean, social media is playing such an important role with just, with really any consumer and most brands, right? And so for us, it goes back to who is the intended consumer? Do we need to create a separate Spanish language Facebook Facebook page? Or will an English language Facebook page that perhaps the client already has well, that suffice, and maybe maybe we integrate some some cultural relevances within those posts and within um, the social media calendar plan. So, again, it's stepping back and taking a look at you know maybe we don't necessarily need to recreate something that's in Spanish, but if our if we know that our intended target consumer is already consuming you know English language media, maybe they just need some some of those cultural cues that kind of raises their eyebrows and say, oh, they're, they're talking to me. And then I would imagine it'd be pretty important if you're, if you're doing a Latino sports marketing campaign that you want to utilize a, a Latino athlete versus a non-Latino athlete. Is that correct? Well, I, I, think, I, I think a Latino athlete definitely helps. And, and again, we get that question all the time. Is it necessary? Um, I wouldn't say it's necessary but it's definitely going to, like I mentioned, raise eyebrows immediately and make that instant connection with, with your consumer so that if, you know, if a Mexican sports fan in Los Angeles sees something with Fernando Valenzuela, they're going to say, oh, that's Fernando. Of course I remember, remember Fernando Mania. He's one of us. Yeah, and so, you know, is it necessary? necessary? No, but it definitely will help. And then there are athletes that just really transcend any culture, any any language, like a LeBron James or 
recently retired Kobe Bryant. I mean, those are going to cost a little bit more, but if you happen to have them already in your kind of stable of, of athlete endorsers, then, you know, tap into them and utilize them as needed. What are the biggest misconceptions about Latinos in sports? I, I think I touched on it a little bit. Um, you know, by just assuming that soccer will check off all of those requirements right. for, for a Latino initiative. I mean, that's, that's error number one. Um, but in a, a brand needs to step back and, and re- think about, you know, who's their target Latino demographic? Is it, is it the Mexican sports fan in Los Angeles? Is it the Cuban sports fan in Miami? Is it the Puerto Rican sports fan in New York? Um, you need to kind of det- determine that. And then are they first generation, second generation? Again, um, you know, what, what's their preferred language? And so I, I, think, I, I think taking a look at all of those different criteria will help you determine, okay, where do I need to be in the sports landscape? Again, is it, is it with the Mexican national soccer team? Is it through baseball? Is it through boxing? Um, but let's not just slap a soccer ball and everything and call it a Latino sports initiative right. and, walk, and walk away. Last question for you. We've touched on some of the opportunities for brands in this conversation, but is there anything we didn't touch on that you think are opportunities for brands around the Latino sports market in the future? Yeah, I, I, I always talk about the Liga Mex, the Mexican League First Division. I, I really think that's an underutilized sports property. Uh, when those... Mexican League teams come to the United States. I mean, they, they're they selling out stadiums. Um, you know, Blue America and Tigres of the, of the Mexican League sold out the BBVA Compass Stadium in Houston, 22,000 fans. And that's the largest soccer attendance at that stadium. Um, you know, they have the Mexican League is the highest viewed sports soccer league in the U.S., regardless of language. So, you know, there you have these opportunities. You have, again, you know, Club America coming to the U.S. July 3rd for part of their 100th year celebration. And those are tremendous opportunities for brands to connect with, with the Latina consumer, and specifically the Mexican consumer. And so, you know, there's activations that can be held. There'll be obviously all of the um, advertising, whether it's on billboard, radio, TV, etc. And so, I, you know, I, I'd like to see brands taking a, a more close look at the Liga MX. Um, again, I just think there's tremendous opportunities there that are being missed. Mario Flores, the co-founder and managing director for Sportivo. You can find him on Twitter at Latino Sports Guy. Really insightful stuff. Uh, I've wanted to discuss this on the show for a long time, so I'm glad we had a chance to have this conversation. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Brian, for the, for the opportunity, and I look forward to, to further chats. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more powered by Postano. SBR will be right back. Hello, everyone. Mark King here, president of Adidas Group North America. One of the most inspiring parts of my job is the conversations I have every day with extraordinary people who are shaping the sports landscape. I talk to athletes, league executives, athletic directors, and agents, and now I'm bringing these conversations to you through my new podcast series, Extraordinary Happens, Competing in Sports, Business, and Life. 
This series dives deeper into what inspires the people who are leading change in sport, both on and off the field. I want to know what makes them tick and uncover how they're challenging convention to make extraordinary things happen for their teams, their businesses, and themselves. And I want to share those stories and insights with you. Tune in to my bi-weekly episodes of Extraordinary Happens on iTunes and Stitcher. And remember, get out there, challenge each other, lead change, and make extraordinary happen. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. We are back to wrap up this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks to Carolyn Joyce for joining us. Thanks to Mario Flores for joining us. Thanks to Pistano for powering Sports Business Radio. Also want to remind you to check out Mark King's podcast. He is the president of North America for Adidas. He's got a great podcast. You can find it on iTunes. Just type in Mark King and you should find his podcast. Thanks to Brian Griggs, our executive producer, and Josh Blank. And if you want to follow us, you can always do so at sportsbusinessradio.com. You can also find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn radio apps. So lots of places you can find us. You can follow me on Twitter at SB Radio. I tweet frequently in between shows. Our Twitter feed was named a top 50 Twitter feed by Forbes for 2015. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Hi, it's Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. Did you know that Super Bowl 50 broke the record for single-day Wi-Fi usage and beat last year's record before halftime? And then nearly 80% of fans use their mobile phones during live sports events? Today's sports fans expect strong, fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. And that is why major venues around the country work with Boingo Wireless to manage their wireless networks. Boingo knows fans, and they know how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. Boingo designs, installs, manages, and monetizes wireless networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Chicago Soldier Field and Phillips Arena, home of the NBA's Atlanta Hawks. Boingo is the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless services so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Sports Business Radio has teamed up with Boingo to bring you monthly stadium stories focused on how technology is changing the business of sports. I will speak with Boingo and their partners, including athletic directors, venue owners, leading sports marketers, and industry influencers who will share valuable insights you'll want to tune in for. For more information on Boingo Wireless, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. 